This is Open to Hope Radio, featuring Dr. Gloria Horsley and her daughter, Dr. Heidi Horsley, coming to you on behalf of the Open to Hope Foundation, dedicated to those who are looking for hope after loss. Now, here's Dr. Gloria. Good morning, and welcome to the Open to Hope Show. I'm Dr. Gloria Horsley with my co-host, Dr. Heidi Horsley. Well, good morning, Heidi. Hi, Mom. Well, it's summertime. It's warm. How's the summer going? It's in, it's August, and uh, we're in full swing, and I'm it's hot. Um, the kids are out of school, and we were saying earlier before the show that brings up a lot of stuff for people because a lot of people are on vacation and holidays, and they're not working. Absolutely, and yeah. And yeah, you just have more time to think about it if you're not working. I was thinking about that first. Uh, do you remember what we did the first summer after Scott died? You know, the first summer after Scott died was a total fog to me. The only thing I remember is going on Outward Bound. I don't remember anything else. Do you know what we did? We rented a house in Chautauqua. Oh, that's right. I do remember that. <laughs> for months. I, I rented a house for a month in Chautauqua. It, wow. It was a, a, it was kind of a relief. Your sister was 14. We let her friend go. And, and people weren't, the kids weren't too happy, but Chautauqua was kind of this closed community in upstate New York, and it's delightful. And we rented a house up there. It was a relief for me because, you know, um, you're just yearning and searching and that first year and looking for but, that person. You are. But what's interesting to me was every time we do anything around water and the ocean, you know, kids don't have their, their boys don't have their shirts on. And there'd be boys out playing in the ocean. And I'd only see the backs of them. And I kept thinking I saw Scott. I mean, constantly. It was ridiculous. And I knew he was dead. But I would run up to the person almost expecting to see him. And almost being surprised when he turned around and it wasn't him. Absolutely. It would be the, the lake there because uh, uh, Chautauqua right. was Right, but I mean, even lake, when yeah. we do beach trips after that, yeah. anything, any kind of thing with water, whether it be an ocean or a lake or whatever. So, so, yeah, so it can kind of sneak up on you, particularly for people who have special places that they always went with their loved one, you know, a cabin or a, a, a place, and they're, they're not there. And wow, it, it, what a, a, right. a tough time. So, anyway, we yeah, wish- and especially whenever you go somewhere for the first time after Scott died, whenever we go to a place like you said, like Ocean City, where he'd been before, back for the first time, you almost expected them to be there. Yeah, even absolutely. Even though you knew they weren't going to be, you expect him to come in through the door. It's kind of kind of an amazing thing. And then also, if you're at a place where uh, people didn't know they died, you know, where you've gone all every summer, and it's a whole community. That, that didn't know, and so you have to deal with that. I remember uh, uh, the minister, I can't remember what his name is, um, a wonderful show, talked about his son who shot himself, about how he had I don't to, know what you're talking about. Yeah, he yeah. Told, told everybody at their lake community that had to go up and, and tell everybody that the, their, his son had died. Very tough. Well, Heidi, um, I think it can be particularly tough for men if they're the primary caregivers this time of year because maybe they're out, and like our guest today, Ken Koppelman, um, he is a teacher, so we can ask him about it, an educator and a college professor. And I would imagine he had the summer off that first summer or, or whatever vacations he had. Uh, why don't you give us a little introduction about Kent and Heidi? Okay, well, as you said, Mom, Kent Koppelman is a professor emeritus at the University of Wisconsin-La Crosse. And he wrote a great book called Wrestling with the Angel, which I have in front of me. And he lost his 19-year-old son, Jason, in an automobile accident. So he kind of brings not only a professional perspective, but also personal, since he's dealt with both. And uh, he'll be a great guest, and he has such... I am a big quote person. I don't know. Quotes and poems really speak to me, and his book is just 
loaded with the most amazing quotes and poetry, and I flagged all this stuff because it really says a lot, and he's going to share some of that with us today, as well as some of his own reflections. So I'm excited to have him on, Mom. So yep. with that, I guess we'll say hello to Kent. Should we bring him on board? Absolutely. Listening? Absolutely. <laughs> Hi, Kent. Hi, Kent. Hi, Gloria and Heidi. It's great to have you on Glad the to show here. today. We met you at yeah. ADAC, right? Association yeah. of Deaf yeah. Educators. Uh, you're a member of that. What a wonderful group. And, and we met you there and thought, wow, you'd be a great a great guest for the show. Well, tell us a little bit about your journey, Ken. It's been how many years since Jason died? Um, he died in September of 1989. And uh, in a car accident, uh, just uh, driving home from work late at night and got off on the edge of the road and uh, was going probably a little too fast. And the car flipped over and uh, his skull was crushed by that accident. Wow. And so it was uh, at least quick and hopefully painless, but um, certainly something that threw our lives into turmoil. Absolutely. And I know you were saying in your book that one of the reasons that you um, wrote, you know, wanted to write, even though I assume that you are a writer in a journal, or I don't know if you were before, but you said that there was not much in the literature about men and grief. Yes, I, of course. I was journaling just for myself uh, as a way of trying to deal with the feelings of grief. And I also, as a professor, I read all the time, and I look specifically for books that had to do with a father addressing uh, the loss of a child, which is what I needed. I needed to hear from other fathers to help me. And uh, I had a hard time finding much. Um, And a couple of things I found were... Um, not very helpful because in one case, uh, I, I just found the resolution the father came up with to be very unacceptable and, and, uh, disturbing. And in another case, the father was spending the entire book constantly throwing out Bible quotes, which can help mm-hmm. someone who's very rooted in their faith, but someone who's struggling with that is not going to find much value or help in, in just sort of references to the Bible without much explanation as if we all could accept that. So I kept reading and finally thought, maybe I should just take what I've written down and try to shape it into a book, which was a very different kind of writing for me to do because I'd always done professional writing for journals, but I'd never done mm-hmm. something personal. So that was that was hard, but I felt it was necessary. I, I would think it would have been risky because in academia you're so uh, criticized, uh, particularly as a student, on your writing and you know whether you're doing it correctly or you're quoting enough. And to to really express yourself must have been a little risky, wasn't it? Well, I, yeah, I felt that a little bit, but it felt um, more. I was in. I felt better about the writing I was doing, so that I it it took away the the feeling of engaging in something a little more personal and therefore a little more risky. Yeah. Um, I needed to write what I wrote. I needed to put it down on paper. It helped me to do that. And so I just said, this is what I have to do. Now, that's your first book, The Fall of the Sparrow? The Fall of a Sparrow. Uh-huh. Yes. And, and tell us how you got the name. I did read about it in your book, but I want you to tell our audience. Yeah, I, uh, it, I had the title <clears throat> early on. I had the title, The Fall of a Sparrow. I knew that's what I wanted to call the book. And when I looked for the specific quote in the Bible, I found quotes that basically said that it was God's fault, you know, um, that God was responsible for the sparrow falling. And that's how I felt at the time. I was, I was you know, upset with, with the reality I was having to deal with. And by the time I got finished with the book, <clears throat> I didn't have that same feeling anymore. I didn't really need to blame anybody. 
And so as I looked again, I looked at the King James Version, and it said um, that not a sparrow will fall without the Father, meaning that God falls with you, that God suffers with you. And I thought, that's a better belief. <laughs> yeah. That's a better kind like of God that. to believe in, I think. That's yeah. a wonderful thought. So I, I, I used the quote from King James and in the book. Uh, that's, a, that's a wonderful thought. Well, how do you think men respond differently, or what do you think men need? What did you need? Well, I think actually, and I've read this too, that for a lot of men, they need to develop a sense of purpose, a sense of of meaning from the death. Um, they need to do something. Men are doers, you know. And I saw that happening with my wife and I from the very beginning after Jason died. I was trying to um, develop projects, things that I could do to help me find a sense of meaning in this really senseless death. Whereas my wife just went off on her own and, and experienced the feelings and dealt with the memories. When we started writing, I wrote from the time we went to the hospital and saw my son's body forward with what happened after that. I covered everything that was happening. My wife started at the same place with her writing, but then she moved backwards and wrote about all her memories. How interesting. So, so, yeah. It was, it was a yeah, different response, and, and it kind of illustrates what I think the literature says about men and women grieving differently. Right. I mean, we've had um, some women talk about their husbands bricking in the whole yard and, you know, uh, doing sort of, sort of physical things. One guy was telling us whose wife died that he actually renovated a whole house and his friends came in and helped him. And, you know, so, mm-hmm. yeah, so uh, men seem to do. Yeah. Well, you talk about, I was saying to Heidi um, that you, you uh, I picked up something you said about inventing a grief process. And I said to Heidi, that, sound, that does sound like men because they're going to do something inventing a grief process. Right. Talk a little bit about that. Well, we, um, both my wife and I discussed the fact that, uh, we, that we needed, we probably needed to do some things, some rituals, whatever you want to call it, some things that would in some way help to keep Jason in our thoughts and in our hearts and in our lives, even though he was dead and we could only really keep his memory alive. But, um, so we started to do just lots of little things, um, we kept an L.L. Bean backpack that he always used, and we took it with us on vacations. When Christmas time came, we put up a Christmas tree at his, at his grave and decorated it. Um, Jason had a tendency to lose change. We would always find change in the floor of his car, dimes and nickels and pennies, you know, in the floor of his car and the, up in his room. And so whenever I find a lost coin, you know, I'm walking down the sidewalk or I'm in the locker room or whatever, and there's a coin on the floor, I pick it up and I say, that's Jason's. And I take it to a cemetery. Mm-hmm. I, I, so we did go those kinds of things. Yeah. We did those kinds of things as a way of kind of remembering him. Mm-hmm. 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 Lovely. Um, you were talking about, um, before we came on air, about what you did on the first um, summer after he died or holiday. Yeah, actually, because he died in September, uh, uh, about the middle of that month, I was in the middle of semester, so we were doing all the normal things and struggling to go to work and do the things we had to do. Both my wife and I were working. But then we had a Christmas holiday as you, you know, actually semester break, but it always occurs over Christmas. So we went to California, and um, and that was a tricky trip. We went with our daughter, who was, of course, still home. And, she was and how old in was she? In high school. She was in junior high. She was junior high. She was about thirteen. Uh huh. Yeah. About the same age as my well. youngest um, daughter. Yeah. Uh, so you know, we were we were all pretty conscious of the absence. 
um, mm-hmm. of Jason not being there. And so we just we just sort of talked about it whenever whenever it came up. You know, we if we went to see, we I think we went to uh, um, uh, Universal Studios. Mm-hmm. And of course, Jason loved movies. He wanted to be a movie maker, and so mm-hmm. that inevitably led to us talking about him. Mm-hmm. And so we didn't try to hide it or ignore it or anything else. We just sort of, but we let it come up naturally. We didn't try to force the issue. If something was happening that reminded us of him, then we talked about it. And did but, you feel like everybody wanted to talk to about it the same? Because what I see with teens and with my own sister was she had a more difficult time talking openly with the family about it. She could talk with her friends yeah. more than her because she was a teenager. Was that an issue for your daughter or not really? Um, she was pretty good about talking. She was pretty uh, open. In fact, all of us, of course, were affected in different ways by his mm-hmm. death. One of the things that my daughter ended up doing was to um, a few, I, I don't remember how much long afterwards, a few weeks, maybe a month or so, but after Jason's death, she began to, as a part of her nighttime ritual of going up to bed, she would say good night, and we would say good night, and she would say I love you. Mm, she'd nice. never done that before, ah. mm-hmm. so that became a new ritual wow. for all of us. So it be, yeah. it can wow. be, yeah. Uh, isn't that true, Heidi? Doesn't it become really important? We all say we love each other a lot, don't we? Yeah, absolutely. And you just you just so appreciate the people in your life that you're close to because you know you all of a sudden realize that people may not be there at some point and, it, and that it can happen suddenly because, like you, Kent, Scott died very suddenly in the prime of his life. Mm-hmm. So, you know, you hold those that you love close to you. So I love and, that ritual. And, That's beautiful. Yeah, and she, and she continues to do that today with phone calls since now she lives uh, in Kansas City. And so mm-hmm. whenever we have long-distance phone calls, at the end of the call, she always ends by saying, mm-hmm. well, i got to go now. I love you guys. Yeah. Those are important. Right. Well, um, I wanted to um, talk a little bit about your book because um, there's so many wonderful things in it. Heidi, you had um, a couple of quotes that you really liked. Can you come oh, up with one? Oh, there's so much. I mean, I could have, I, I've got some tags, but what, now I don't know who said this, Kent. You can tell me. Um, hmm. It says at one point, for those who stand and wait, it says, let me tell you something. I'm not done grieving yet, and I don't care who knows it. Hmm. <laughs> yeah, that was... Uh, I laughed when I read that because it's, you know, it spoke to me. Because there's times where we're not done, and you know what? If the world has a problem mm-hmm. with that, that's their problem. Mm-hmm. We are in that place, and that's okay. We don't need to quickly move into a different place. Yeah, that uh, that actually starts that essay, and um, the next line talks about the tombstone not listening. Um, that's mm-hmm. what I was saying. And oh, because okay. sometimes I when that. I well, what, sometimes when I go to the cemetery, I talk, and sometimes I don't. You know, mm-hmm. I, if if I feel a need to say something, then I say something. And that particular day, I that's what it felt like saying. <laughs> so uh, yeah, I, I lo- came home and made a note. I love that you said the tombstone. You are talking to the tomb. The tombstone makes no response, of course. I wasn't really talking to it. I'm simply talking yeah. out loud. Yeah. Which uh, yeah. I loved how you were able to do that and say, you know what, this is where I am right now. And I don't care if people know I am grieving. I'm in pain. Yeah, um, that I, I, that was, oh, the, and that's where a lot of our listeners are right now. Absolutely, they, and the they, yeah. and the book has so many great essays and so many great quotes. And uh, tell people how they can get your book, Wrestling with the Angels. Yeah, Wrestling with the Angels, published by Baywood Publishing Company, and uh, they can they have a website, so like everyone has today, and you can contact them and order it directly through them. 
That's I think it's Baywood at Baywood.com. Great. And I imagine you can get it on Amazon, too, can't you? Yeah. 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 And how about The Fall of the Sparrow? Is that one uh, still in print? Yeah, that is still available at Baywood as well. Okay, I think that would be wonderful, too. I didn't, uh, you know, we didn't see that one, but for an early griever, you're talking about that really early suffering point, aren't you, in that one? Cause right, yeah. That, yeah, that book uh, basically was written over the first nine months. Um, I stopped the writing on Father's Day, which for some reason mm. just, um, that was when I wanted to stop. <laughs> wow. Mm-hmm. But I covered that whole, what you know, the kinds of decisions I'm making, the sorts of things I'm experiencing for those first nine months. Well, um, we thought that maybe you'd want to do uh, one of your poems and the one that uh, Edna Vincent Millay. Did you want to say something about that poem and read a couple of stanzas for us? Oh, yeah. The, uh, one, one of the, as you said, I, I also love quotes and, and poetry. And I actually came across this poem while I was working on the, the galley proof. So I substituted it for another one I had because it, it uh, probably, I think, says it best in terms of how I and many of us, I think, feel about loss. She's talking about losing people she loves and, and what is lost when people die. And this is picking up in the third stanza. What is lost is the answers quick and keen, the honest look, the laughter, the love. They're gone. They're gone to feed the roses. Elegant and curled is the blossom. Fragrant is the blossom. I know. But I do not approve more precious was the light in your eyes than all the roses in the world. Down, down, down into the darkness of the grave, gently they go, the beautiful, the tender, the kind. Quietly they go, the intelligent, the witty, the brave. I know, but I do not approve, and I'm not resigned. Ah. Oh, well, thank you so much, Kent, for being on the show today. And um, sure. it's just great. You're such a great writer. I really hope people will get this book. And I, I hope uh, oftentimes we have a lot of women listening to the show. I hope that you will get it for the men in your life because I think it's a book that can really be healing and um, just wonderful, as I said, quotes. It's nothing you have to read through in one reading, is it, Kent? You can pick it up and read essays. And you also have a play in there. Yes, yeah, so a one-act play uh, that I wrote on a rainy afternoon when I had nothing to do <laughs> about a, an angel of death that comes for a man who hasn't, uh, isn't really prepared for this. He's lived what Socrates called the unexamined life. And all of a sudden he's forced to examine it quickly and he's trying to talk the angel out of taking him. <laughs> well, thank you, so. Kent. Yeah. Thanks, Kent. And thanks for the work you're doing and the writing and the fact that you're so generative. Isn't it amazing, Heidi? Absolutely. And like you said, Mom, he's got so many good, I mean, this book, you can just, I just picked it up and just started randomly opening it. And there is so much in here that will help people find hope after loss. Thank you so much, Kent. You're welcome. It's been great to have you on. Well, uh, we want to remind you that this, uh, our shows are put on our website, the Open to Hope site, and this show is brought to you by the Open to Hope Foundation. And you can uh, get a new show every Thursday at 9 o'clock California time and at 1 o'clock Eastern Standard Time every Thursday on our site. And please sign up for Facebook. And uh, Heidi, it's been a great show today, hasn't it? Absolutely. I've enjoyed it. Yep, and uh, we hope again that you'll get the book, and we wish you a very happy, and if not happy, uh, getting through the summer and uh, taking care of yourself, I think is the main thing, don't you think, Hyde? Yeah, and, and being good to yourself, like you said, Mom, and finding some peace. 
Absolutely. Tune in again next week for more of the Open to Hope show. You've been listening to Open to Hope Radio, hosted by Drs. Gloria and Heidi Horsley. Like today's edition, all of our past programs are available on demand at opentohope.com, along with helpful articles, videos, resources, and links to help get you through the toughest time of your life. You can also follow us on Facebook and Twitter and sign up for our monthly newsletter. Again, that's opentohope.com. Check it out today. Then be sure to stop by next Thursday at 9 a.m. Pacific Time when we'll be posting another edition of Open to Hope Radio. Remember, others have been where you are. They made it through, and you can too, as long as you're open to hope.